0: Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christchurch Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. But for several decades now, here's what's happened in the life of the local church. For several decades, I mean, going back, I mean, two, three, four decades, a large part of evangelicalism and churches that I've been a part of in my own thought life, even with our church, is that discipleship is to be relegated to Sunday school or small groups. So instead of individuals discipling individuals, discipleship in large part has been relegated to... programs at a local church or institutionalized discipleship. So if you get connected to this institution and if you get three contact points, because Christians love measuring success, so if you can get three points of contact and if you can get people in a small group, a service team, and gather together to worship on Sunday morning, well then by these measurements we are making disciples. So discipleship is about being connected to a program, a Sunday school ministry, A service team, something like that. That's what discipleship is. So in other words, when people become Christians, they're told, Hey, get connected to this quote-unquote church or institution or machine. Get connected and be the spoke in the wheel of this organization or program, and then you will be being discipled. Well, what's the problem with that? The Great Commission did not go out to institutions. It didn't go out to organizations. It went out to Christians. In other words, it's not Christ Church's Carbondale's responsibility to create the program of discipleship. It's your responsibility to make disciples, and it's mine. But what we've had now is several decades of people not knowing how to do this. Because the encouragement has been, come to Sunday school, and come to small group, and and, and serve, and get busy, and then all of a sudden, 20 years later, you're supposed to be a functioning, have have a biblical worldview, and know what it means to walk with Jesus and God and others. But the challenge of discipleship is not in the hands of Christ Church Carbondale or any local institution. It's in your hands. You have been commissioned with the work of being discipled, and making disciples. And a new believer needs more than a program or an institution. A new believer needs Dustin Wright. A new believer needs Kathy Claude. A new, new believer needs Hank and Marie to come alongside of them and say, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to show you how to study God's Word. I'm going to teach you how to live the Christian life. I'm going to show you and encourage you in Christ New believers need names of people who are willing to invest in them and for them. They need to be strengthened in the faith. They need help to grow roots, deep roots in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need individuals to come alongside and to help them know how to hear from God. Mainly, how to hear God's word, his speaking voice. And Paul knew this. And so when he said to them, I long to see you, in verse 11, how we ended last week, this longing in the Apostle Paul, I long to see you, why does he long to see you? In verse 12, that is, verse 11, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, your version of the Bible, if you have the King James Version, it's going to say establish you, because the strengthen you carries with it this idea of being established, or rooted, or growing up. We, We want you to be strengthened in the faith. We don't want you to remain babies in the faith. We want you to be strengthened in the faith, the Holy Spirit is saying through the apostle Paul. Paul longed to be with them, again, not just to see Rome, but to see them and then impart to them some spiritual gift that they would be established. So why? Why is Paul longing to do this? Why is Paul longing to be in Rome? Because he wants to give them this spiritual gift. Simple, it just says it, to establish them. To strengthen them. We're going to see here in a minute what that spiritual gift is. And often when we think spiritual gift, we think about 1 Corinthians 12. And those are in play. Or Romans chapter 12, those are in play. Or Ephesians chapter 4, those are in play. But there's a unique gift that Paul is going to talk to that they need and he needs also. And I love it because it just seems so ordinary. It just seems so everyday common. It doesn't seem radically supernatural, but Paul wants to impart to them this spiritual gift. He wants them to have it, because if they have it, this spiritual gift, whatever this spiritual gift, if they have it, I mean, it's going to be huge. If they have this spiritual gift, they're going to be strengthened and established in the faith. I kind of want to know, what is this spiritual gift? Because whatever it is, It's going to help them. It's going to be huge. So here it is. Here's this big spiritual gift that Paul wants to impart to them. And we see it in verse 12. That is. So what is this spiritual gift that he wants to impart to them? He's going to tell us in verse 12. It's not just some random spiritual gift. It's a very specific spiritual gift. And just listen to how massive this is. How earth-shaking and world-changing this is. That is... That we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Wait, Paul. What, what? What are you talking about here? What's going to establish them? Why do you long to want to be there? What's the spiritual gift? I mean, it's gonna—you would think—drop like a bomb. What is this spiritual gift that you want to impart to them so that they would be established or strengthened in the faith? Mutual encouragement. What? Don't you think that he would list out the gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because, and then just give them to the church in Rome? Church in Rome, you need to know about this. If you're going to be established in the faith, you need to know the list. He just says, I want to impart to you mutual encouragement in the faith. I want your faith and mine to be strengthened by mutual encouragement. Here it is, the big idea, the big gift, the big bomb. I want to encourage you, and I want you to encourage me in the faith. Encouragement. Now notice, Paul doesn't only say, I want to impart to you something you need so that you will be established. But Paul lets them in on a little something. Essentially, he says, what I'm going to be bringing to you, you're going to be bringing to me. It's just there in plain language, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So this bomb that Paul drops is just simple encouragement. George, I want to be an encouragement to you in the faith. And George, I want you to be an encouragement to me in the faith. And apparently this is the big spiritual gift that Paul wants to impart to the church in Rome so that they would be established. Now, he gives them this huge letter, but the main thing that he wants to do when he gets there is just bring this encouragement. So why is this so helpful? Why is encouragement in the faith so important? And what's the difference between worldly or natural encouragement And spiritual encouragement, or being encouraged in the faith, because faith is tagged on to encouragement, encouraged by each other's faith. So it's not just, I want to encourage you and I want you to encourage me, it's something specific, it's some sort of specific encouragement that Paul wants to bring and that Paul wants to receive. And I think we get into a really important thing about the uniqueness of Christian encouragement. Let me explain. Christian encouragement is radically different than non-Christian encouragement. Radically different. Non-Christian encouragement seeks to build you up by praising your abilities and your so-called uniquenesses. So non-Christian encouragement wants to wants you to think much of yourself. Wants you to uncover the beauty within. It's a rah-rah, go get them, you can do it kind of encouragement. Non-Christian encouragement doesn't care anything at all about the truth. It cares everything at all about satanic affirmation or fleshly affirmation. The so-called love of the world, unconditional love of the world, or this unconditional affirmation is unconditional hate. It's hatred to approve evil in somebody else. It's hatred to approve somebody else's sin. It's hatred to the uttermost. It's not affirming. It's not loving. It's not caring. It's not just being open and loving towards everybody. It's hatred on display to say that we affirm sin. And it's damning to people. Christian encouragement is radically, radically different. The aim of our encouragement is not for Christians to think much of ourselves, but we want to encourage each other in the faith. And so how does this look different? Bad encouragement looks like this. You've got this. You can do it. Go for it. There's nothing you can't do. Just trust yourself. Just believe in yourself. Rah, 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 rah. It's people-centered. But Christian encouragement is different. Encouraged by each other's faith. Each other's faith. Where's our faith? Where's the Christian hope? Who do we put our faith in as believers? You can say it out loud. Who's our faith in? It's in Jesus. It's not in ourselves, to bring Christian encouragement has some conditions upon it. To bring godly or right encouragement is to look at somebody when they're down and to bring encouragement to them in the Lord. It's to look at somebody and say, God's got this. God has this. In your own strength, you don't have this. But praise God, he is with you. He's got you. He's got the future in his hands, and he's got you in his hands. God is faithful. He is strong. He can do this. Jesus is able. There's nothing he can't do. You can trust him. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Christian encouragement is radically different. Hey, get your head up. Look to Christ. He is not ashamed to call you brother. It's when we're face-to-face with sin yet again, and we feel like we're getting kicked to the ground by our flesh and the enemy, we come alongside. And Hank, I'm not saying that you are, but if in this moment you're getting kicked by the flesh and the enemy, I'm able to look at you and say, Hank, look at me. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. You're washed by the blood of the Lamb. You you belong to Him. You are the Lord's. Press on. God's at work into you. In, in you, He has forgiven you. You are His. So quit your moaning. Quit complaining. Quit crying like a baby, Hank. <laughs> Press on. God's at work. In, you see the difference? To encourage one another in the faith is to recognize that God is for us. And if he is for us, who could be against us? And so we need to walk up to people. And we come together on a Sunday morning again and never think that Sunday morning is a place that you just come and you sit and you get what you need from God and, and you're just there to receive. You are here to be a contributor as the family of God. That's why we do that from the field time. You are here to bring encouragement. Look at somebody. If somebody's down in the dumps, typically people can put their, can, you can recognize, okay? They're sad, something's going on. I don't know what's going on. And it's not like the goal is just to get around and, 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 and make everybody just as happy as possible. But for you to be strengthened, you need to be reminded this isn't about you. And that's a good thing. This life, this walk with Christ, is not about you, it's about Christ. Look to him. Do things look dire? Do things look difficult? Well, that's life. God includes some of those things in us, in there for us. And we're to come alongside and say, God is for you. He's not against you. He's for your good. He's exercising his fatherly care over you. You can trust him. Love him. He is, he's at work in you. That's Christian encouragement. And Paul says this is a key to being established and rooted in the faith. We need people to come alongside of us and be Christ-like cheerleaders. Not our cheerleaders to say, you go get him, Tiger, but to say Christ is in you and Christ is with you and Christ is for you. There's nothing that he can't do. So press on. Sleep well at night. Sleep well at night. He is in control. Do you see the difference? You see the difference? It's massive. It's otherworldly. We come alongside of incur- and encourage one another. We need to be regularly reminded and encouraged that God has saved us, that we are His, that we belong to Him. The church, in a lot of ways, is a big assurance factory, Mark Dever said one time. That we come together and we just assure one another in Christ. You, are, you belong to the Lord, brother. You're the Lord, sister. Like, Your family. God is not angry with you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the spiritual gift of encouragement, I'm asking God to give to us in mighty ways. That you come on a Sunday morning, and you can be either doubting your, maybe even doubting your salvation, or doubting that God is at work in your life, or feeling like your prayers are hitting the ceiling, and you've been praying about this one thing over, and over, and over, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you know what? I've been enjoying it. I've, I've, been, in pray- I've been praying for you all week, and I just want you to know that God's at work in you, and He's faithful, and you know what? You're going to be okay. And in that moment, you're just like, my goodness, I just needed to be encouraged. And what happens we're encouraged that way? Well, we're strengthened. We're reminded of the truth. And Paul says, here's the great big spiritual gift that I want to impart to you. And oh, by the way, I'm going to reap some of the benefit myself. Mutual encouragement in the faith. Friends, the church in Rome needed this, and we need this. May God bring and build encouragers. Every one of us. Encouragers in the faith. What is the result of Christian encouragement? The result is that people are strengthened. They are established. Friends, the flesh and the enemy will not encourage you in the faith. I promise you that. The flesh and the enemy of our soul will not encourage us in the faith. They will encourage you. The flesh and the enemy will actually encourage you in yourself. And at times it will sound like Christ-like encouragement. The flesh and the enemy and really bad friends will come along and they will encourage you in yourself. You just need to love yourself more. You just need to forgive yourself. Friends, you can't forgive yourself or anybody else. You can forgive somebody for sinning against you, but you can't forgive their sins. Only God can do that. And again, in this self-help environment, self-help culture that we live in, you don't need God to do anything anymore because the self can do everything that God used to be required to do. You, can take, you don't even have to take care of yourself anymore. You don't, even have, God, you don't even need God to take care of you anymore. You can take care of yourself. And there is a good sort of self-care, by the way. If you're not taking care of your body, you should be. That's what we are called. We're stewards of a body here, the temple of the Holy Ghost. But you need God to take care of you. And we need God to forgive us. We can't do those things ourselves. The flesh and the enemy will encourage you in all the wrong sorts of ways. But we need people in our life, just like the church in Rome and just like Paul needed, that will encourage us in the faith. God's at work. God's at work in you. I see him at work in you. And I'm exhilarated about it. When we hear the Lucas and Breeze home, that Lucas is open in the Bible, we need to encourage it. God's at work. Man, that's awesome. Praise God. That is so great. But that's not all. That's not all. There's more. Look at verse 13 and 14 in Romans chapter 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Brothers. So that, that's an indication we're talking to believers right now. Again. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have intended to come to you, but thus far i have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, for I am under obligation both through the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish. Paul says to them, I've wanted to come. I really have made plans. I have been prevented, but church, just know this. I've really wanted to come to you. Paul really did want to come. Have you ever made plans to do something, go on vacation or do something on the weekend or do something on your day off and the plans are just exploded? I mean, who actually has plans that come to fruition the way they want them to? I mean, how rare is that? Even the uber plan planners who have every you know, thing in a box and, and this, 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 and this, it so often goes in a different way than we want it to go. We, we really cannot contain, control tomorrow or the next day. As much as we may want to be planners and control freaks, there are things that happen that just we just cannot control. And Paul experienced the same sort of frustrations that you and I do. Isn't it interesting? Sometimes we think about the Bible. Sometimes we think about that We misunderstand the characters of the Bible and think that God just always split the sea for them. And everything just worked out perfect for them. And they were just able, in, in <coughs> the power of the Holy Spirit, to just walk through life. And thankfully, over the last several years, I mean, there's been a shattering of that, of realizations that, that to, to be a follower of Christ is to, to be persecuted, is to welcome the same sorts of difficulties into our life that anybody faces. But the Apostle Paul here is just like us in so many ways, in the sense that he made plans, and those plans just got exploded. He wanted to come And things didn't work out the way they worked out. Well, what do you do when things don't work out the way you want them to work out? Well, you just keep pressing on. That's what the Apostle Paul did. And here's what I can promise you this week. There are going to be things this week that don't go the way you want them to go. So what are we going to do about it when that happens? When we face discouragement or when our plans fall through yet again? Well, you have an opportunity in front of you. We, we can either whine and complain, cry about it. The glass is always half empty, always half empty. I knew this would happen. And you can be Debbie Downer. Sorry if there's a Debbie in here. Debbie Downer and stomp and complain. Or you know what a better option is? You can just press on. Just press on. Move forward. Keep making plans. Keep praying press on. This is the life of the Apostle Paul. Press on. Just move forward. That's what he did. He wanted to come, and he wanted to reap a harvest among this church, and this harvest he wanted to reap because he was held up from coming. He didn't get to reap yet. He longed to get to Rome and preach this gospel and see the work of God happen and spread throughout the city, but he was held up. He didn't get to, but the desire of Paul was to get there, and he wanted to reap a harvest Among the Gentiles, because if you remember right, Rome is like this melting pot. It's this great melting pot of colliding cultures from all over the world. People longed to get to Rome and move to Rome. Thank New York City. And I'm sure, as sure there are friends in New York City, there were definitely friends in the city of Rome who lived across each other in the same apartment building and had friends and hung out and played together and ran through the city streets together and drank at coffee shops together. Friends. Just like in a modern city, and it was a melting pot culturally, people from all over the world. And Paul wanted to get there and reap a harvest among the Greeks and the barbarians and the wise and the foolish. And they're all in Rome. And I think that Paul wanted a gospel harvest. He didn't want just to come in and befriend them. He wanted to come in with the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish. And this representation is, uh, is representable of, of the entire world or everybody that's in Rome. And Paul wanted to come in and reap a gospel harvest. He didn't just want to make buddies. He wanted to see God's work spread throughout the city of Rome. And Paul actually says that he wanted to do this because he was a man under obligation. He was obligated. Gospel obligation. Paul was under a holy obligation to the Greeks and the barbarians and the wise and the foolish. He believed that he was obligated by God to tell anybody and everybody in Rome or anywhere he he could find people the good news of Jesus. And here's what I want to suggest to you today. Although Paul was under a unique obligation from the Lord, under a unique obligation from the Lord to spread the gospel in ways that we are not specifically called to spread the gospel. He was called as an apostle. We are not called as an apostle. However, we are also like Paul under obligation. This is what I I don't mean this. I don't mean I don't mean that we are living our life to pay God back for something. I don't mean that because Jesus purchased us and we are his, that we are now trying to pay him back. We can never pay God back for anything. We're not earning. We're not living to score brownie points. We're not earning to say, okay, God, you gave me this much. Now I'm going to live the rest of my life trying to give you everything. And maybe if I give you everything, you'll be really happy with me. That's not how this thing works. But this is a unique obligation that I believe we are all under. When you are purchased by the Lord through the blood of Christ, you do not belong to yourself any longer. You lose your rights in the way we think we have rights. You are now obligated to follow the marching orders of your king. A few weeks ago we talked about there's a slavery that looks like freedom and a freedom that looks like slavery. Paul opens the letter calling himself a slave, a bondservant of Christ. And for those who are bondservants of Christ, the sons and daughters of God, us, those who are in Christ in this room, you have been given your marching orders. You are under obligation by God to tell people of the hope that's within you obligation by God to bring the gospel of Jesus wherever you go. You may not be a natural born evangelist. You may not feel comfortable going to the street corner and saying, let me tell you about Jesus or making a cold call or knocking on a door and saying, sir, do you have three minutes to talk to me about Jesus? You may not feel comfortable for that with that. But you are, like Paul, under obligation to those Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. Your neighbors, your family members that do not not know Jesus, your children that do not yet know Jesus, you are under obligation from God to live in such a way and talk in such a way that they hear and see the work of Christ. We don't get to opt out of that. We don't get to say, well, some people are under, under obligation to share the gospel, or some, some people are under obligation to the Lord. That Everybody who is in Christ, every single person, man, woman, and child, has been given marching orders from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and we do, do not get to opt out. You are under holy obligation to tell people the good news that we may, by the grace of God, reap some harvest among those to whom we've been called. Nobody gets to not be a missionary Charles Spurgeon says we are either missionaries or imposters. Missionaries are not only those who go across sea and and bring the gospel to the place that Christ has been named. Missionaries are names for every single disciple of Jesus. We are under obligation to them. And I just have to ask, there are some people in here who have never told the good news to anybody. Maybe that's terrifying. And I'm not asking you to stand on the street corner. But I am asking you, by the grace of God, to see your obligation to your unsaved family members. To get past the fear of the awkward conversation at Thanksgiving. To get past the fear of the weird conversation at Christmas or that birthday party. And to tell them what Christ has done in your life and what Christ has done for sinners. And you don't have to be heavy-handed, you don't have to be the Bible-thumper, but my goodness, it's better to be thumped with the Bible if they meet Jesus than to be never thumped at all. Give them Jesus. We are under this obligation to the world. We've all received grace upon grace. There is no Christian who has not received grace upon grace. We are all debtors. We owe God our very lives. We have received this truth. And it is our joy to tell other people about it. We must share it. Now that we know the truth, we can't keep it to ourselves. It's just too good. Those things that bring me joy, I have to celebrate. That's why if you love the St. Louis Cardinals, you're really awkward around Leto right now because he's wearing a Cubs hat. (laughs) Or if you're a Cubs fan, you're really uh, See that? They just swept the Cardinals last week in a series or two weeks ago. Cardinals fan right there. Cardinals fan, okay, brother, right? Right. Cardinal fan. When you enjoy something, you want to share it. And and the weird thing is, there are so many Christians who never share Jesus. And I just have to ask the question do you enjoy him? Do you enjoy the good news of Jesus? Because those things we enjoy, we tell people about on the internet. And we tell our friends and neighbors, even if it's awkward. We bring it up. We find ways to bring it up in conversations, those things we enjoy. Do we enjoy Jesus? If we do, this is not meant to be a, a guilt trip about enjoyment of Christ here. It's because there's grace for those who are in Christ who don't enjoy him. Think about that. We tell things that we're excited about. If we have in, in our possession the cure for cancer, what would you do? you get the megaphone out. You'd scream it from the hilltops. You'd call hospitals around. You'd go to St. Francis or the medical centers up in Minnesota. You would tell them all about this cure. You you couldn't sit on it. And I think the analogy holds true. When's the last time you personally have told somebody about Jesus? Friends render obligation to do so. Paul goes on, it's not just the non-believers that need to hear about Jesus. This is what is so fascinating about the book of Romans. And what's so good for us, because I want to tell you, friends, that you never outgrow Jesus. You just grow more and more into him. You never outgrow him. You never get bored with him. He never gets tiring to hear about. You can never know all that there is to know about Jesus. You just can't. Paul says something really unique, because in chapter 15, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. But that's not what he says here. Keep in mind, every letter that Paul wrote to every single church was a letter to believers, and they're chock full of the gospel of Jesus. Paul wants to preach not just to the Greeks and the barbarians and the wise and the foolish in Rome. He turns his attention to the brothers and sisters who are in Rome. And look what he says to the brothers and sisters in Rome in verse 15. He's eager to do something for them. In verse 15 he says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome. Now a basic lingu- linguistics person or whatever, could, we could understand clearly that he's been talking about Greeks, barbarians, wise and fool, foolish. And now he changes it and he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. And that's in verse 13, identified as the brothers. The you in letters is not to the cities, unsaved people in the cities. The you in Paul's letters is to believers. You, he's writing to the church. And what he t- tells the church in Rome Not only do I want you to be established, not not only do I want to bring encouragement, I want to preach the gospel to you, Christians who are in Rome. One of the greatest joys of my life is preaching the gospel to Christians. That sounded so weird to me when I was younger in the faith. When I was younger, I thought that the gospel was only for non-Christians. I thought it was only for evangelism. And I think that idea is still prevalent today that the good news of Jesus Christ is for non-believers and when they enter the Christian life they become Christians they kind of move on and they start getting into deeper things or deeper studies but the gospel of Jesus is kind of left and now we kind of go on and we get our greek lexicons and our concordances out and we do our word studies and and we learn christian theology and all this kind of stuff and We learn our eschatology, and we get it all figured out, all the ologies. But the gospel of Jesus, and I think one of the calls of my life that God is calling me to, just like any minister of the gospel, is to simply preach the gospel to Christians. Tim Keller famously said, The gospel is not the ABC of the Christian faith. The gospel of Jesus is the A to the Z. Of the Christian faith, I used to think the gospel was the shallow end of the pool and not the deepest, deepest part of the ocean. I didn't know the gospel of Jesus was for Christians. Really, didn't? It sounded strange to my ears. Why would you preach the gospel to Christians? They're already saved. I can't tell you how many times I've said that before or thought it. But Paul preached the gospel to Christians all over the place. In every single letter, he gave them the gospel. All Paul's letters, every one of them, are to believers. And in every single letter, he gives them the gospel of Jesus, except for Philemon. Philemon, a letter to a friend, does not contain the gospel of Jesus. There's no life, death, and resurrection in Philemon. But the call to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother, was on the basis that he is a brother in Christ. The implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ went into Philemon's very life. But Paul wrote the gospel everywhere. And the question that used to rise up in me as I first began to think about this was Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, because after all, doesn't the writer of Hebrews say, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity? Not laying again the foundation of repentance from the from dead works and, and, and faith toward God right there. Hebrews says, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, move on. Press on, get out, just forget repentance of dead works and move on. But we have to ask, what does that mean? Because the writer of Hebrews goes on to unpack the glories of the gospel of Jesus and the doctrine of Christ. And we see how deep the grace trench is in the gospel, the depths of the ocean is of the gospel of grace in the book of Hebrews. And I think what Paul is saying, or what, whoever the writer of Hebrews is, I showed my colors there, for who I think the author of Hebrews is. I think what he is saying is move on from the elementary doctrine of Christ, not move on from Christ. Not move on from Christ. Let's get on from the elementary and get into the junior high doctrine of Christ. And then to the high school doctrine of Christ. And then to the college doctrine of Christ. And then to the master's level doctrine of Christ. And then to the doctoral studies doctrine of Christ. And when you're there, you'll have barely scratched the surface. You'll have barely scratched the surface. Because Colossians chapter 2 tells us that in Christ are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You cannot ever get bored with the Jesus in whom has all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Friends, there's always more to discover about the gospel of Jesus. Leave the elementary stuff and move on to the junior high stuff and the high school stuff. Move on. Press into him. The elementary doctrine of Christ, I think, is you must be born again. Get saved, brothers. And the whole point is if we never get past the get saved and show how the gospel of Jesus impacts us, if we never understand the unique way in which the gospel is to be preached for believers, we will stay as babes in Christ the rest of our lives. Move on from repentance and dead works. You're a Christian now. You're a Christian, you're saved. So now, let's get into the depths and the treasures and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't just stay saved. Like, it's not just—it's a win for believers to get salvation in their back pocket. There's no such thing in the Bible. Eternal security is not, I'm saved, now I'm good the rest of my life. Anybody who says they're saved and doesn't press on the rest of their life and doesn't finish in the faith was not a believer. You cannot claim to know Jesus and not press in by the grace of God. And if there's no entrance in you, interest in you, or anybody else who claims the name of Christ, to move on and to press in and to know Him more, the last thing the Apostle Peter said is in all of his writings in the New Testament is, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that's doctoral studies in Christ. Press on. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to the believers in Rome, not that they would be born again, but that they could grow in their faith. Let me give you an example in just four New Testament epistles of how this works. Because again, the gospel of Jesus is just ever. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why does the gospel need to be preached to believers? Because apparently in the cities of Galatia, they were dealing with some other thing they were dealing with in the church before. They were dealing with this thing called racism. Have you ever heard of this thing called racism? Unfortunately... In the history of the world, and up into today, there are people who believe that they are superior because of the color of their skin—whether that's white, black, um, red, red and yellow, black and white—they are precious in the sight. Whether, wherever on the spectrum, there are people culturally, because people are sinners, who believe that they are superior to other cultures and other races. And when people became Christians, when Peter is preaching the gospel. There was a time when some people from Rome came up to where he was, um, people in Jerusalem came up to where he was, and Peter had already been eating with Gentiles and hanging out with them, because the dividing walls of hostility have been shattered for those who are in Christ Jesus. Racism doesn't exist, shouldn't, where the cross is preached, and for those who believe in the gospel of Jesus, they know that Jesus purchased people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and language. And we talk about the Christ, we find brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't matter their skin tone, their culture, their nation, wherever. But apparently Peter, when those Judaizers from Ju- Jerusalem came, he began to draw back. And he began to look at those Gentiles, even though they were brothers and sisters in Christ, and he began to separate himself and he wouldn't eat with them anymore. And it's interesting what the Apostle Paul does. Because he addresses the situation to his face. He won't stand for this. Peter, this is unacceptable, and I want you to see how the gospel impacts racism. Chapter 2, verse 11, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, so from James in Jerusalem, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. They see Peter, well, Peter's separating, so I'm going to separate from the Gentiles again. Why don't we build up this dividing wall of hostility again, even though Jesus tore it down? So we're going to get with our people, and you get with your people. Verse 14. All verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so even Barnabas was led astray. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? And I can imagine Paul's tone being something like that. But here's what he said. If you know the truth of the gospel, Peter, you can't live like this. Peter needed to be reminded of the truth of the gospel so the dividing wall of his hostility would be broken down again. He was not living in step with the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And where racism exists, unfortunately there still is racism in our world. And if it ever exists in the church, we need to do the exact same thing and say, your your actions are not in step with the truth of the gospel. Because if you know the truth of the gospel, you're staring into the eyes of a brother or a sister. The gospel of Jesus impacts racism. In Ephesians chapter 4, the gospel and the forgiveness of others, right kinds of forgiveness. We can't forgive other people's sins the way God can, but when people sin against us, it can be quite hard. Anybody in here ever been sinned against? I know I have, and I know you have. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, here's what the apostle Paul tells the church in Ephesus, be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here's how, why Christians need to hear the gospel. Because there are Christians who deal with unforgiveness. And they hold bitterness. And they need to be reminded, did you deserve God's forgiveness? As we preach the gospel to them and move on from the elementary doctrine of Christ and we say to them, do you earn God's forgiveness? Was that person sin against you? more vile than your sin against God? Are you more holy than God? Who are you to withhold something that God has given so freely to you? This is everyday life. Why we need to hear the gospel of Jesus is we need to be reminded the mountain and the Mount Everest that we have been forgiven of so when that molehill offense come to our way, we can say, how can I withhold forgiveness? I've been forgiven of so much and I am not more holy than God. But so often we show the reality of the depths of our sin even as spirit-filled believers where we actually get more offended at people's sin against us than we are offended at our sin against God. Their sin against us is vile in our eyes. But we don't blink an eye at our sin against God. We don't stand in awe that we are forgiven. The gospel and the forgiveness of others in Ephesians. The gospel and humility in Philippians chapter 2. When we see the humility of Christ, we know it, and it makes us humble. When we see that Jesus obeyed even to the point of death on a cross, it humiliates, uh, it, it it humbles us. It brings humility. It destroys pride. We see the glory of Jesus and what He had done, what He's done for us, and humility swells up, wells up inside of us. Or in Colossians chapter two, holding fast to Christ helps us stop the indulgences in the flesh. In the church in Corinth, here's what people are saying. If you want to stop the indulgences of the flesh, you just need to hear the law. And you need to get every, all these parameters around your life, and you need, just need to try harder and do better, and you need to know just don't drink the stuff, and don't touch the stuff. Just don't even look at it. And Paul says, you know, that has an appearance of stopping the indulgences of the flesh, but it has no power to stop the indulgences of the flesh. Holding fast to Christ has power to destroy the indulgences of the flesh. And so as we preach the gospel to Jesus, by the grace of God, we're holding fast to Christ, and the indulgences of the flesh are being destroyed. Oh yes, we need the gospel. You know, there's an incredible gospel chart. I can send it out to you, but when we first become a Christian, and I don't know if you can see this or not, probably can't unless your eyes are like Superman or something, but when we first become a Christian in conversion, we have a general awareness when we're a Christian of God's holiness and our sin. That's why we cry out, forgive my sins, God. We have a general awareness when we're converted of the chasm between us and God, a general awareness. But as we walk with Jesus, here's what ends up happening. The longer we walk with God, the more we are able to look and see how massive that chasm really is. Because I tell you what, I know more about God's holiness today than I did when I was five years old. And I know more the depths of my sinfulness now than I did when I was five years old. And when you begin to think about, look look at what it took for God to save you, when you begin to think about it and you grow in your awareness of how holy God actually is, And when you actually see how much and what you actually deserved, you know, you're appreciative when you become a Christian of the cross, but the longer you walk with Jesus, the longer you know how holy God is and what you actually deserved, how sinful you were, your appreciation for the cross gets greater and greater and greater and greater all the days of your life. You don't walk with Jesus discovering more and more all the days of your life how much less you need him. You discover all the days of your life how much more you need him. And how much how present he really is. There is more of Jesus from your than your need. And so I'm looking forward to preaching the gospel to you. My prayer is that you would hold me accountable to this if I'm not preaching the gospel to you every week or whoever stands on the stage. And I'm not just talking about the elementary doctrine of Christ, I want to preach that. But if I'm not preaching the gospel to you in such a way that helps you release your unforgiveness of other people, or it helps you grow in humility, and if you ever get the impression that I think that we should leave kind of Christ behind and get on to the more important stuff, don't listen to me. My goal every week and my high and holy calling and privilege is to give you Jesus every single week. Will you come to Him again, believers? What a joy it is to preach the gospel. Not just to you who are in Rome, but for, for you who are in Carbondale. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Help us to sing of the glories of Jesus. As these songs and the words come out of our mouth, I pray that joy would flood our hearts. Pray we would know the words that we are singing. And Lord, I pray with that holiness chart that we would understand how holy you really are and how, what we actually deserved from you. And we would just look at the cross, even as we just, that, that cross that's up there on that wall, and just think, oh My goodness. I deserved hell. And God gave me grace. That while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Jesus, you're worthy. God, you're amazing. So Holy Spirit, just work. If there's anybody here who hasn't heard or responded to that elementary doctrine of Christ, repentance from dead work and faith in Christ, that I pray this morning you would grant faith and they would repent of their sins and they would trust in Jesus. And then for us all, as we sing the good news of Jesus, just flood our hearts with joy. Jesus, is your name we pray.